Okay, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa Lulu Sway, co-founder and chief experience officer of On The Rebel. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. How are things in your corner of the universe today, Lulu? Hey, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I mentioned before that we have a friend in common. So Reggie from Oakland Haife, we was just on the phone with him. So he wants to give you a shout out as well. I am currently in New York, in Brooklyn. Things are... Crazy, exciting, nerve, nerve-wracking, nervous, all of those things uh, as New York's cannabis uh, adult use market is coming online. Yo, and it sounds like you've just got tons of irons in the fire right now. So I'm excited to dive into those and to learn a little bit more about what On The Rebel is all about. So, of course, On The Rebel hosts events and conferences aimed at fostering an inclusive, collaborative and flourishing cannabis sector and is now breaking into the psychedelic space. And you're also a user experience and research advisor for Oakland Haife, as just mentioned, which is super cool, among many other notable positions and pursuits. So right off the bat, just to get a sense of context and understanding about how On The Rebel started, I'd love to hear about how did you first decide to start this platform, which has now turned into a reputable powerhouse with a national footprint? So that started in about 2016. I met my co-founder, Jacoby Holland at a Women Grow 420 party in New York City. And at that time, there was a lot of conversation around advocacy as well as fundraising and investment, but there really wasn't any group talking about what was happening, um, boots on the ground in the legal adult use markets. So I came up from the Washington state market in 2016 on the extraction, processing, post-processing side. Jacoby came up from the Colorado market with one of the first vertical operators. So we met in New York because uh, our background is in tech. So I'm a user experience uh, designer and researcher. Jacoby is a mathematician who is now an entrepreneur in residence for um, some large uh, brands. So when we met, we were you know, pitching our uh, <clears throat> cannabis technology software that we were both uh, trying to fundraise for. And it was really cool. It was like the first time I actually heard real conversation about the supply chain and what was really happening um, in the markets with someone in New York and especially uh, a black man. So it was it was really cool. We, we connected. We're kind of an unlikely pair. But uh, our first uh, we, we thought it was it was important that people were understanding the opportunities um, in the coming on as an operator or coming on as a worker in the cannabis space, which no one was talking about in New York at that time. We really wanted to focus on people that look like us because in our respective states, it was very predominantly white um, and male. So we were just like, let's bring the folks that we've worked with that are super amazing, that believe that cannabis can be diverse, can be inclusive, that it's a long game. It's a community driven uh, industry that needs to have a lot of uh, impact to change hearts and minds. So we started our first uh, 50 person, I think, um, more like a meetup in uh in new york city at a co-working space 
And now we're doing large scale events that, you know, bring up to couple, four or 500 people now. So um, it's been beautiful to, to see all that hard work coming, coming to fruition now that New York's coming online. Sure. And California, where I'm from, has had a lot of criticism about the way the cannabis industry rolled out legalization, especially in regards to equity and access, who gets the permits, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that you've been working diligently to try to help change the narrative on this. So I would love to hear about First off, have you noticed meaningful change in the cannabis industry at large since you've started doing On the Revel in regards to these different target outcomes that you have about fostering more inclusivity and fostering more democratization of information? And the second part of that question would be, how are you positioning yourself for this emerging psychedelics ecosystem to make sure that from the get-go, it's more collaborative and inclusive and community-driven? Oh, both great questions. So... I think, you know, watching other states come online, social equity, uh, social justice, social impact was something that was added later. So what I really do uh, respect the New York uh, OCM is, you know, the bill that we passed, 50% of all licenses need to go to social equity um, operators. So I think that in itself is, is something that's very different and, you know, is speaking to the direction that I hope our industry is, is moving towards. Um, the other part of it is, you know, the first uh, hundred or so retail licenses are going to justice impacted. So folks that have had cannabis uh, convictions um, and arrests. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's very fair. I think that's important to give folks who have been impacted um, by the war on drugs first access. I think it's pissed off some folks who are normally used to getting first access to things, but um, I think it's really fair. Fair is fair. You know, you, you can wait, you can, you can, you, you have the resources, you have uh, the funds, you have the backgrounds to get your license and operate successfully. Just wait, you know, a year or two, you know, give somebody else a head start, And, you know, that way we can create a fair and equitable uh, market, which we really haven't seen uh, come to fruition in a way um, that I think most advocates and folks that are passionate about cannabis uh, want it to be. Right on. I'm still learning about all of this too, because I was a regular cannabis user going back to 2007, but the whole decriminalization and legalization just sort of passed me by because it never even crossed my mind that I could get involved in this industry since it's still so, it felt like kind of an underground pursuit at that time when I was in college. And so it's been really interesting now that psychedelics are starting to come into the mainstream. That's something I have a longstanding experience with and have been very invested in social justice going back to my university days and before by virtue of hosting exchange students, I think is what really drove me to have compassion for a lot of people with different backgrounds and different demographics is having a chance to grow up hosting and getting to know people from places like Ghana and Venezuela and staying in touch with them. And also being from a border community. I'm from the South of San Diego. So I've seen the way that social policy and the way that political policy directly on the ground impacts people and how it can favor certain demographics at the expense of others. And I've kind of seen that my whole life living in Chula Vista and having friends who have their families in Tijuana. And so it's been really fascinating to follow and get involved with all of these different initiatives and efforts to try to make sure that an emerging legal framework for psychedelics is more inclusive and more it serves more populations on broad, broad spectrum rather than just having sort of 
profit motive being the focus of these frameworks that are being rolled out. And I can I can talk a lot about my opinions about the the clinics that are the psychedelic clinics that are popping up. Um, you know, ketamine, which I think is not a psychedelic. People like I'm sure people are going to get upset about that. I think it's it's a disassociative. I don't really think it is a true psychedelic in many ways. I've uh, seen the price tags that go along with that. Um, so I think right now psychedelic medicine that's legal uh, under the pretense of ketamine is is very much uh, accessible through a very wealthy demographic. Um, so to your point, I think it's going to be really important that as uh, legislation and regulations get written, that there is consideration of access. So, you know, I think a lot of the, the price tag comes with these researchers and medical professionals that have a certain hourly rate associated with them, right? So if you're going for like a six-hour trip, a seven-hour trip times $200 an hour, that adds up. You know, and but that really prevents a lot of people who need access to these medicines for PTSD, for domestic abuse, sexual abuse, all of the things that, you know, cause a lot of trauma. They need to have access. We really need to think about how other potential uh, practitioners can be involved in this. Um, I'm talking about religious leaders. Um, you know, I'm talking about it's interesting. I, I, I've interviewed um, folks from. Um, the Orthodox Jewish community, where their rabbis are, are exploring exploring with psychedelics. Um, uh, we have to think about shamans from indigenous cultures. We have to think about, you know, energy workers and other types of healers that aren't just, you know, clinical Western way of, of thinking about mental health. Sure. And it's interesting to, to think about ketamine kind of leading this psychedelic renaissance in a legal sense, because my understanding is that ketamine is not even approved as a psychedelic. It's basically an off-label usage of it. It's approved as an anesthetic. And it's not a gray area. It's not like it's illegal to use it this way. But that so often, like when I went to meet Delic in Las Vegas this year, there were a number of different representatives from ketamine companies or you know psychedelic companies that are leading with the ketamine model. And that whole conception just change the way that I thought about this is that a lot of these players who are rolling out ketamine clinics, it's not a, it's not approved as a psychedelic, but it's being marketed as a psychedelic, psychedelic healing experience. And I think that says a lot about the package overall. So yeah, we can talk about that uh, as much as you want. You know, it's something that I don't have a lot of experience with, but by virtue of hosting the podcast, I've hosted some of these, you know, players from larger companies who are leading with the ketamine model, and then they're filing IP for different novel molecules and kind of planning on uh, expanding their operations once the legislative landscape changes, which we're starting to see more and more. But uh, we can always come back to this if it's something we want to touch on further. But I'd love to transition into talking about microdosing, because I know it's something you have a lot of experience with. And it's something that many people around the world are finding tremendous therapeutic value with. And of course, it's relatively new as far as like a mainstream platform and of people talking about it and using it and adopting it, et cetera. And it's something I don't have a tremendous amount of experience with. I have had microdose uh, founders of microdose companies on the program before, and they've sent me products and I've, I've done it to, you know, varying degrees of success, especially with uh, integrating it into an exercise routine into boxing while microdose. I found a lot of value there, but it's something I want to learn more about because so many people find so much value in it. And I also think it's more, 
approachable for a lot of people. You know, there's a, a broad segment of society that's probably concerned or kind of apprehensive about taking like a big psychedelic dose. But like if you can make the case that you can take a small amount and you can meaningfully change your routines and have positive outcomes and there's sort of clinical or a lot of anecdotal data to support that, I see that as being very approachable and something that we can kind of drive this narrative of psychedelic mainstreaming with. So I'd just love to hear some of your experiences um, in particular what are some best practices for microdosing? And do you see any demographics that are particularly underserved right now with all of this microdosing research that's coming out? Yeah. So let me preface everything by saying, like, I am not a healthcare worker. I am not a mental health care worker. I am not a shaman in any respect. Um, and I'm not like an expert but I am an expert in user experience and research, which means I'm very good at uh, being able to uh, collect data and, you know, talk about trends and um, and, and talk in a very anecdotal um, way about things that I've heard through interviewing folks, through surveys and things like that. So this project started right before uh, COVID happened. So, you know, I was in touch with uh, Reggie first for the cannabis space and then learned a lot of the stuff that Oakland HIFE um, and HIFE Labs was doing and really believed in um, the necessity of being able to do testing for psilocybin and other things. Um, so during COVID, I, you know, it, it was it was slow for work. So I was like, oh, what what is something I could do in the meantime while the world is going crazy? And, um, you know, people were talking about microdosing. So I was able to interview groups that were doing, you know, collective microdosing journeys. I was able to talk to folks individually. So I can definitely talk um, in anecdotal insights that I've learned from those conversations. So I like to call microdosing spirit vitamins. Um, I think you're right. You know, um, most of the folks that I'd say I interviewed were probably, you know, late 20s and older. So at that point, I think as human beings in this culture, we start to uh, analyze our lives. We start to think about things. We start to go a little bit deeper within ourselves. I think during the pandemic, it was almost forced time for people to be with themselves. So um, psychedelics and microdosing definitely came up uh, a lot. Uh, there was just a lot more folks doing it. Um, so I would say... I think you're right. I'd say a lot of people like to jump in into the deep end first um, and go kind of with a with a deeper trip, a guided trip. Um, sometimes they do it on them by themselves. I think that's what a lot of us did when we were younger in college. Um, and then you know, there's a lot more research now about microdosing, and I can definitely say that uh, microdosing, I think, does. The same feedback comes from microdosing, but it's over a longer, longer time. You know, so I'd say I would say like a trip dose and macrodose is almost like an exclamation point to yourself versus microdosing is almost like a little vignette that you create. Um, so we we see a lot with, um, you know, there's there's many types of protocols, but the two that we see mainly is um, the Paul Stamet stack which is five days on, two days off, and the Dr. James Fadiman stack, which is, you know, one day on, two days off. I think for newbies, I, I, I think the, the, Paul, uh, the 
Paul Stamen stack is um, a little bit more like for uh, someone who's had more experience. The Dr. James Fadiman uh, protocol is is nice because it's like day one you take your dose, day two you have remnants in your system still from the dose, and day three you're back to baseline. So it gives people a really nice way to really understand as you're riding this wave of, you know, it's in your system, it's out of your system, how it works for you. And we always, you know, we always ask people to journal about this. You know, we think of it as almost like a research project for yourself over these 30 days. And also every dose day is different. One day is going to be on the weekend, maybe with your family, with your friends, and other days at work. So after 30 days, you're really going to get an understanding of how this can be a tool for you and how to incorporate it within your lifestyle because we never say there's rules to any of this. It's all brand new. You know, everyone is a little bit different. Um, it's interesting to learn that with psychedelics, it's not body mass indicative. It's all about chemistry and brain chemistry. So, you know, I've talked to these 90-pound ballerinas that love to take, you know, 0.5 grams of psilocybin. And I talked to these 250-pound MMA fighters that can only take half a dose. So, again, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very uh, subjective in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, I think it's just really important for people to figure out how it works for them. Absolutely. And to that end, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into maybe some of the different potencies of different strains that you might have observed from some of these from some of these trials. And as an example, when I was growing up and for a lot of people this holds true, there was so much mythology and misunderstanding and misinformation about potency of mushrooms. And I think, you know, there, we're starting to see some potency testing. Oakland Hyphae has been a pioneer in that field. And there's a number of other labs that are coming out, even some more competitions that are starting to take shape. And one of the primary narratives that we would hear is like stems versus caps. And I don't actually know if that's ever been settled. It very well may have, but it's just this idea that even still there's a thorough line that runs through a lot of the psychedelic community about which strains are stronger. Like, you know, there's this conception that penis envy is a very strong strain. Well, then you have wild strains and you have people who are taking Penelius and things like that. And not, you know, I'm not an expert on all of the different names. That's kind of why I tap in with people. But anyways, the the potency of psilocybin mushrooms varies drastically depending on strain. So I would love to hear about some of your observations from microdosing and from working with these communities and designing experiences. Can you share with us some of your observations from these different trials that you've been engaging in about how the potency of different strains of mushrooms will impact a user's experience? Sure. I think, again, um, it also depends on your chemistry. So what, you know, and also what else you're taking. So we do see folks that are, have, have mentioned that they're, you know, on SSRI or MAIO or any of those kind of antidepressants or, you know, serotonin uh, controlling uh, pharmaceuticals. So it just, it just kind of depends. So, you know, for me, something that even though the, the testing of psilocybin can be higher than another strain, I find that that's not always the case in how it affects people. Maybe it's like yeah. it's it follows the 80-20 rule. So um, albino penis envy is something that seems to be strong for folks across the board. Um, we've worked with growers to kind of just get feedback on the consumer side. So um, albino penis envy, 
Ghost is another one that seems to be pretty high. Uh, Enigma, to a certain degree as well, uh, tends to be pretty potent. Um, and then, you know, for microdosing, it, it, it's funny how it's important to maybe select a strain that is not super high with that just to start because a lot of times it's just really important to with microdosing you're not supposed to feel anything really it's supposed to be a very slight shift in things um that you know affect you uh mentally spiritually creatively um in a way where it's not supposed to make you trip so you know i would say in general um staying away from those super potent strains uh, and choosing something like a golden teacher, a, uh, a plus, uh, a Mazatepec, um, what else, what are some other ones? Hillbilly, uh, the, the penis, uh, the, the penis envy, the grower that I was working with, um, the feedback from that was, was not as high as, as for example, the, the albino penis envy or, or ghost or, or enigma. You know, I've had a really potent enigma experience within the last couple months, and I was personally blown away. And of course, this is anecdotal. And um, I've had a, a lot of experience with different strains of mushrooms going back years and whatnot. And I took, you know, I didn't even weigh it out, but I took what I eyeballed to be like a mini dose of enigma and it knocked my socks off. I could not believe And uh, credit to the grower there. Shout out Dinkelberg. Great work, buddy. So I, I would love to go into the after effects of microdosing because one of the debates I think that's out there is, is microdosing something that people should adopt and do for a certain period of time? And then it helps you to transition into having better habits and having better mental health, et cetera, and then you're done with it? Or is there value in like integrating microdosing into like a long-term routine? I'm curious if through your observations, have you noticed... Any people who have microdosed for an extended period of time, you know, be it a couple months or whatever, and then stopped microdosing and those benefits continued for them? Or in your experience and your observations, is it something that is more like a spirit vitamin that you take potentially on end for years at a time? So I think it depends on the person, right? I think the, the intention of, of why they come into this could be different. Um, so it could be, you know, I've talked to creatives who are, you know, in a creative block who are using the microdose specifically to release creative block or enhance their senses or, or be able to, um, to just look at things from a different perspective. So a lot of folks, you know, will use it for a specific amount of time and then where they're kind of at their, uh, the place where they want to be, or let's just say the place where their vibration has reached uh, where they like, then they'll stop and they'll come back to it at a later date. We do, um, I've talked to folks that, it was, it's been really surprising actually, I, I, through this project and talking to people have, did not, I totally did not realize how many people are, are, are on pharmaceuticals. Um, I would say 65 to 70% of all the people I talked to were coming to microdosing specifically to either get off pharmace pharmaceuticals or perhaps um, stop cravings because they've gotten off of pharmaceuticals. So that was a really interesting insight. I was like, whoa, I didn't realize this. And it seemed like folks in my generation in, in the 40s and, and above 
you know, we are the generation where antidepressants were really, uh, you know, had their heyday um, and also sleeping pills. And, you know, my business partner and my partner is in his 30s. And it seemed like the folks that I'm talking to in their 30s have been prescribed Adderall and Ritalin and a lot of the, the stimulant types for ADHD. Um, so it's that was a really, really shocking um, insight that, that I learned just from talking to a lot of folks. That makes so much sense to me to adopt a microdosing routine to affect a specific change. And I think that comes back to intentionality, which is something I wanted to talk about also with you is like, there's so much value for so many people in these psychedelic experiences, but pretty much anyone you'll talk to who's working from a clinical perspective or from a lot of indigenous perspectives are talking about the importance of like a therapeutic practice that surrounds this, you know, as opposed to just like you're taking this magic bullet and it's going to heal some issue or whatnot. Like this is one tool that is embedded in a tool set, you know, um, having therapy. So I guess when people promote or advocate for psychedelics, a lot of times they're advocating for psychedelic assisted therapy too. And that can look, you know, different ways to different people, how you support someone, how you go into with preparation and with integration. And I'm curious if you could detail us or if you could walk us through some of the ways, some of the best practices for supporting a microdose routine. If somebody is interested in adopting microdosing and maybe they don't have a ton of experience with it, but they've been researching with it, what are some of the lifestyle habits or some of the containers and, and, and habits that they can embed their microdosing routine within to ensure a greater degree of success? You know, some people have come in that I've talked to and are like, okay, I'm going to change my whole life. I'm going to change my whole diet. I'm going to do all of these things. And I don't think you need to put that much pressure on yourself, right? I, I think this is still in experimental mode. I think it's important for someone to figure out how this can be a tool for, for them to use because the way I use it might be completely different than the way that you use it. You know, we've had people talk about replacing their pre-workout supplement. You were talking about, um, you know, with, with exercise. Uh, I just got uh, a an email from someone that uh, I talked to previously who was a runner and he incorporated uh, psychedelics into his regime and he shaved off 32 minutes from running the Boston Marathon. So, you know, those, those type of anecdotal things. So um, I think it's important to journal, you know, as you're experimenting with all of this. Um, it's important to just kind of note the things that you're feeling. Is, is it a physical thing? You're, uh, are you nicer to people? You know, I've heard, I've heard feedback from folks that are like, there's this asshole at work. And, you know, I don't feel anything physically, but you know what? Like, normally he bugs the shit out of me, but I'm choosing not to react. Um, we had a lot of conversations with parents during uh, the lockdown. And, you know, I heard things where people were like, I'm feeling more connected to my kid. I can drop in and be in that, you know, play mode with my kid. Or I've got three teenage daughters that are going through puberty at the same time. It's normally really crazy, but uh, I'm, I'm able to handle a lot of the things that would normally annoy me. Um, we've had people say microdosing has forced me to come to the decision of leaving a job, leaving a partner, 
leaving me, uh, you know, leaving X, Y, and Z because they're just aware of the things that they need to let go of to maybe open back up in themselves to, you know, create a new plan to just, you know, figure out the next phase in their life. So I think microdosing psychedelics in general are a really great tool to help reframe things. Um, the way I kind of describe it is imagine if you're able to look at things, make decisions, act in a way where all of this world's bullshit teachings, things that you never asked for are melted. So you're operating from the true you. So, so I think that is helpful in anything. And I think microdosing um, can help you access that part of you to, to get closer to that part of you, to start making decisions from that perspective. Well, damn, you know, you've got me wanting to microdose again because I cultivate my own mushrooms and I'm often wrestling with the idea of like, do I want to just have a bunch of like medium sized doses or like, should I grind some of this up and microdose with it? So it may be high time. This would actually be the first time that I've cultivated my own mushrooms that I microdose with. And, you know, as the words getting out there from many different, you know, there's TV series and books and conferences and things like that. Like there's an unprecedented level of mainstream international interest in psychedelics right now all over the world. And I've got people from extremely traditional backgrounds reaching out to me personally uh, just for guidance and things like that, right? People who I never thought in a million years would ask me for this because it's just been, there's so much stigma around it, but the stigma is changing, obviously. And, you know, education and doing uh, deeper level research and actually being patient with it is obviously contributing a lot to that sea change and the way that our society evaluates and, and thinks about psychedelics. And I would love to use this as a segue to talk about your involvement with Oakland Hyphae, which I'm super stoked to learn that you've been appointed as a, a user experience and research advisor for Oakland Hyphae, who is doing amazing work. I've been out to one conference. I went to the California Psychedelic Conference that they hosted and ran a panel there. And I am going to be at the conference in, in Oakland in September. So I'm looking forward to that. I've met a greater, broader community through the Oakland Hyphae Network. Just so many wonderful people who are all excited about community-driven activism and about rolling out psychedelics in a way that's equitable, that's sensible, and that is beneficial from, you know, in a widespread way, as opposed to a top-down way. I would love to hear about how'd you get connected with Oakland Hyphae and what are some of your responsibilities in these, the new roles that you've taken on with this organization? So I met Reggie through a, a friend, JD, who's a scientist and he was an advisor. I think he still is advising um, with Reggie on the, the lab side of the house. So we met right before COVID and, you know, COVID happened and we just stayed in touch because like you said, you know, Reggie's built an amazing community. Um, he's very knowledgeable. He's so sweet. He's just, you know, he speaks with such earnesty and, you know, he's a trustworthy uh, colleague. So, you know, I know he's been doing some amazing things on the testing side of the house. Um, I think, you know, my uh, background with user experience and, and being able to talk to folks on the, the front of the house with the consumers, it was just a natural um, conversation that we had in, in, in order to kind of join forces to be able to provide information and reports and uh, trends from both sides on the potency testing side and how it correlates with 
actual feedback um, and effects on the consumer side, specifically around microdosing. Again, I'm not a, uh, a medical researcher. I'm not a, a drug pharma researcher. That I know there's a lot of studies going on on that side, but um, I don't think there's there are very many studies happening on the microdosing side. Most of it has been on the macro um, and guided, um, you know, therapy assisted uh, therapy guided uh, type of research. So um, it's, it's interesting to hear all of these things. I, um, I did want to kind of go back to one question that you asked about um, one thing that people always seem to, when they're at the end of their need for psych, for microdosing is I find that people start forgetting to take their dose. So I think that is a clear indicator when Maybe if we want to talk about the woo-woo side of the house, I, I have a, a philosophy about this. I feel like everybody has a resonance, right? So your thoughts, your feelings, animals, everything has a vibration, a resonance, a frequency. At some point in your life, it changes, right? Whether it's a chemical thing, a social thing, a psychological thing, familiar, any, any of those things, a life, a life trauma thing that happens. So your frequency changes. So what I'm finding, I call these spirit vitamins because I feel like these are great tools that help you tune back to that frequency of where you want to be at. And, you know, it also kind of amplifies what we found with group dynamics. People were doing microdosing journeys together was that 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 power of intention, that power of being able to collectively form these frequencies of, of, you know, manifesting and pulling things back to you just seemed really uh, abundant. You know, we had group members, you know, those moments where you're like, oh, I'm thinking about Dennis. And then all of a sudden Dennis texts me. There were so many of those types of moments when there was like a collective group doing these. I've sat in a lot of these uh, different groups, men's groups, uh, healing groups. So it's been really interesting to kind of see and observe those things. But I'd like to say, like, I think what's important is people... You know, with microdosing, hopefully your intuitive voice becomes stronger. Um, You know, I always believe that you're your best doctor. You're your best teacher. So these these should be helping you, you know, reach reach to your inner teacher and inner um, uh, intuitive voice to start guiding you. Right. So if someone's doing a cycle for 30 days, check in with yourself. Do do you feel like this is something you want to do more? Or is it something that you're, you're kind of cool with? And if you're starting to forget your microdosing, I, I generally say that's, you're good. And you can come back to it at any time, you know? You know, I really wanted to ask about KPIs or like key performance indicators and how you know if a microdosing routine is truly effective. And that's such a beautiful way to be able to tell and to have closure on it. And I also have a lot of experience with the intuitive side of things, as you mentioned, and that's what drew me to psychedelics in the first place is this sense of inner confidence and clarity. When I, you know, at a younger age, I went to the university of San Francisco, as I've shared many times on this podcast, so like psychedelics were quite prevalent and golden gate park and the hate street and that whole community and whatnot. And every time I would have a psychedelic experience with mushrooms in particular, I felt such a tremendous clarity of like where I needed to place my time and energy. And, you know, that guided a lot of my undergrad that guided a lot of the what I was doing with my music career and with my filmmaking career and things like that. And uh, it's always been using that as like a, a template for like, man, how do I just tune into my own inner authority, like my sense of knowing and 
So you're preaching to the choir when we go into the woo-woo bit. Uh, one other thing I really, I just made a note of this right now. I wanted to ask you to kind of clarify and break down for us what exactly a user experience designer is. And I went out to the Savannah College of Art and Design a couple times and to the Atlanta campus. And I did a summer educator forum with them in 2018 when I was teaching multimedia production at a high school. I got invited out there. So I got, I got to go out a few times and it was amazing. I ended up going out to Hong Kong with them and, and spending a week at their campus there. And they were so hyped on user experience, UX. And that was the first time I had even heard that term. I come from a background where I have a degree in media and you know I was involved in the arts and tech scene in the Bay Area, literally never heard the term user experience. And then I go out to this like hip institution, SCAD, which a lot of people are familiar with. And not only are they bullish on UX, they were saying that like UX is the future. And like, and I think one person in particular, one of the advisors said, I would advise incoming freshmen to SCAD to seriously consider UX as a major for them. So, you know, I've always thought about it in the tech space, you know, about user experiences, like you're designing apps. And um, I've even used some of the Adobe software dimension, I believe it is, or one of the Adobe programs to kind of like wireframe. And I've, you know, built really rudimentary prototypes of apps and whatnot. But like thinking about user experience in the context of doing psychedelic research is something that's broadening my horizons of understanding. So I'd love to hear from you. What exactly is a user experience designer and how are you applying this to the psychedelics industry? So I'm going to date myself. So I started doing websites back in 1993 and I grew up with the internet. And at that time, there really wasn't a term for UX. UX is now a very uh, defined uh, practice in terms of uh, design framework. So I started doing, like you said, UX for tech. So it's it's basically UX designer. Like I think my role is to really learn about the end user or the end. I, I hate calling people users that the end human, uh, the end machine. Uh, really understanding their goals and motivations uh, and how they do work. And my goal is to design products and services that fit. Uh, within the mental model and uh, within the workflow of how people do things as a way to provide a service, to provide tools that help them in their life. Um, so it, that, that might not be the, the uh, educational um, thing you would see for a UX program, but that's my role as a user experience designer is to create products and services that are adoptable, that are adaptable and that are approachable. So, We've been doing this, Jacoby and I have been doing this um, in our On the Revel programming. So essentially, it's it's really learning um, what people are looking for, how people view things, and, you know, designing products that on a small scale. So we do Lean UX, which is designing something on a smaller scale, testing it understanding what works, what doesn't, going back and refining it and keeping the cycle over and over again. So in terms of psychedelics, um, I think it's really important to understand your demographic, you know, like what kind of, what type of product are you trying to make? You know, I, I know we've all both seen a lot of stuff happening in the gray market. So, you know, there's a lot of really beautiful packaging that's happening out there. Um, really beautiful um, messaging that's happening out there. So in terms of applying for UX is, hey, how does how is this messaging? How is this packaging? How is the way that you're presenting products? How does it hit with the demographic that you're trying to go for? 
Um, and I think being able to apply that across all types of things that you're trying to build or design is important. Um, I'm trying to, you know, maybe add some of that thinking towards the, the presenting some of that maybe to the OCM in New York, being able to think about, hey, you know, if we're designing a whole um, framework around all of the operators and how they're going to connect for a cannabis market, let's go through and learn what a cultivator does and all the pain points that they have to hit. Let's learn what a manufacturing operator has to do and all the things that that are in their way and all the things that um, they need to connect with. So really identifying like everybody's role and being able to in, intentionally kind of build things around how people work. Part of user experience is user research. So getting feedback, using surveys, having interviews, running people through demos, um, getting as much feedback as you can and being able to refine it depending on, uh, you know, the KPIs and the quantitative and qualitative uh, feedback that we get from folks. Sure. Well, let's extrapolate from that a little bit and talk about this emerging legal industry around psychedelics, which is moving quite quickly in a lot of ways. And when I was at conferences this year, one of the things that stuck out to me is somebody made a comment that during the gold rush, which whether or not it's the right way to refer to it, a lot of people have talked about psychedelic gold rush and all of these different people getting involved in the space, all these different companies. Um, in the real gold rush, Levi's jeans made all the money by being sort of adjacent to the whole thing, not necessarily the people out there mining, but like a company that supported them. And I've seen a number of different organizations adopt this approach of like creating treatment adjacent services like software and infrastructure and things like that. I'd just be curious from the research that you've done, from the user experience research, are there any tremendously underserved arenas of this emerging psychedelics industry or ecosystem that you think if somebody was wanting to get involved with this and, and you know, bootstrap their own entrepreneurial enterprise, it might be worth focusing on that rather than opening another ketamine clinic. So picks and shovels, right? Um, so the ancillary groups. Um, a side project that I'm working on, which I really feel passionately about, is I'm working with um, a group that is wanting to do, uh, well, they already started um, a genetics, cannabis genetics, and putting them on the blockchain um, with the intention of being able for everyone who participates to be monetarily compensated or in whatever other means of compensation for participating and, and being able to create real genetics. Um, so I think that in turn would be really amazing for mushrooms, um, for psilocybin, for any of the other types of, of psychedelic mushrooms there are. I think it's going to be interesting. I've, I've seen people create the, um, the grow kits which I think are kind of cool. I think a lot of folks, because mushrooms are a lot easier to grow than say cannabis or, or any other type of thing, um, I think most people are gonna be trying to grow at home. You know, I, uh, I, I have my bins already and I just need to be in, uh, in New York for longer than four weeks at a time to, to facilitate that. So I think, you know, what, Reggie's doing with testing. I think that's really important. Um, 
yeah, that's that's a really good question. I see folks that are gearing for uh, retreats. So, you know, maybe in Oregon specifically where that where I'm from, you know, talking to folks that are getting ready to be the hosting of the facilities, the facilitators, or even providing housing um, for these types of clinics as well for doing weekend types of things or deep therapies. I've actually been seeing that in Mexico a lot. I live part-time in Mexico and, and I've been talking to some therapists down there that are already holding, you know, um, one month retreats for folks to come down and, and do deep work. Sure. Well, thanks for providing some insights there. I'm always just curious, you know, there's so many different angles you can approach this from and um, not everybody needs to get involved in immediately setting up one particular type of service. Like there's a lot of different angles that you can approach from. And I think that's valuable. And what what has stuck with me is kind of bringing my skill set to the table with media and education. That's sort of what my background is. You know, I've taught high school, I have a degree in media, this, that, and the other. And I realized like, wow, like there's room for legitimate platforms and independent media platforms that sort of cover everything that's happening. So that's sort of where I'm stacking my chips at the moment and always looking for how to, you know, better that or develop it. And I'm actually in the process of creating a survey monkey sur- survey right now. So I think that is a part of the UX, right? As we used to do that in high school, it's like hear specifically from people like, what, why do you listen to the podcast? What do you want to see, et cetera, et cetera. So be on the lookout for that eventually. Okay. We're kind of hitting the sweet spot, Lulu, of, of where I like to be on these episodes. But before we let you go today, I always like to ask about what are some projects you're currently involved in? You know, we just went through a few of them. I know you've got a ton of irons in the fire all over the country. What are some things that maybe you'd like to promote or things we can look forward to uh, from the On the Rebel camp over the next couple of weeks or months? Cool. So with On the Rebel, we're hosting our first Brooklyn block party on August 28th um, in in Bed-Stuy. Uh, I am also president of the Cannabis Media Council. So that organization is dedicated to, you know, coming together as an industry, you know, independent of brands, independent of category, just getting the industry together to start creating some national level uh, cannabis forward campaigns. So think of, you know, the Got Milk commercial, but for for cannabis. So we're uh, actively um, working on our first campaign for this year. So keep an eye out on that. Um, want to give a shout out to Oakland High Fay. So the Oakland Psychedelic Conference is September 17th and 18th. Um, the High Fay Cup, Oakland High Fay Cup, um, the results are going to be announced on the 20th. I'm really going to be bummed. I'm going to miss that, um, that September conference. And, you know, love to meet you in person at some time, Dennis. So those are kind of the things that are, that are happening. And at some point, um, you know, when the genetics platform comes online, I'd love to, uh, you know, show you that since you're excited about the education piece on that. I think that's, that's the next wave of making sure that um, you're getting what you, you, what you bought. Lulu Sway on The Rebel, thank you so much for joining us on the Micopreneur Podcast. I've had a blast today. I've learned a lot and I wish you continued success and great fortune in all of your different pursuits. Thank you so much, Dennis. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Podcast. that's the handle, 
Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Michaelpreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Michaelpreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Michaelpreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Michaelpreneur podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.